Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk about Ukraine and the U.S. and worldwide response to the Russian invasion. Sanctions have been the most prominent tool to try to punish Vladimir Putin and his aggression. But what are sanctions, really? How effective a tool are they? And do they hurt Russian citizens more than authoritarians or oligarchs like Putin? We'll also get a local update on how Ukrainians are weathering the Russian onslaught. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, a lot of people have been kind of critical of the United States for not doing enough to push back the Russian aggression. But just because our country has not intervened with its military in this affair doesn't mean it hasn't done a lot. Congress has sent $14 billion worth of military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine. And now President Joe Biden says the United States will accept 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. But most of the efforts from the U.S., its Western allies, and Japan, most of the things that we're doing is about the economic implications that we can enforce or inflict on Russia. In early March, economic sanctions went into effect on Russia's central bank, which have been called the single largest action of such kind in modern history. And in cutting off Russia from its financial reserves, Its currency, the ruble, has been put on the brink of default. The leverage Russia has in all of this is its oil, which it serves to countries around the world, including in neighboring Europe. All of this leaves us with a surplus of questions, of course, including what this means for global politics, what it means for our own economy, and how the war will shape economic markets into the foreseeable future. That's where we begin the conversation today. What are the economic implications, not only of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but of the worldwide response to that invasion? And to help us understand is Adam Toos. He's an economic history professor at Columbia and the author of many books about our economy. Adam, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good to be here. Before we get to these specific sanctions and what's going on, I just want to start with a simple description of sanctions. What are they and how do they work? Well, they're a, they're a close cousin of the sorts of things you do during a siege or you know, in economic warfare. So they are effectively a kind of blockade. 
So it's a decision to <laughs> refuse to buy Russian stuff we would ordinarily buy or to block Russian access to financial markets, to banks that they would normally use. Um, and it could go as far as we have done here with a kind of outlawing, a, a freezing of the status of the entire monetary system, the monetary authorities of the Russians, which is the central bank, their equivalent of the Fed, which thought it had half a trillion dollars worth of reserves safely stored away in its fellow central banks in the West and, and has found itself shut out of access to those funds. We've gone as far as to try and cut senior Russian figures out of international organizations like the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And then, as it were, the most popular, you, you might even say populist element of the sanctions regime is to go after individual members of the regime um, or people close to it. So you, you chase down their private assets abroad. So you, you politicize, you, you use legal state measures against the private assets of folks that you figure are effectively part of Putin's regime, Putin himself, and you know the yachts, the, the villas they like to buy. And then the bit that's perhaps most directly relevant to the war is that you stop the Russians buying high-tech ingredients for their war effort chips, other microelectronic components. And I think you can kind of generally put all of these actions under the umbrella of economic isolation, right? Uh, the idea of taking Russia, its assets, its activity, and ostracizing it because of what it's doing in Ukraine. Uh, talk about how significant that is in the modern economic world where the connections between uh, one country's economy and the rest of the world are, are so important. I, I get the sense that there is, uh, there's a significant difference, for instance, between the effect that these kinds of things can have on an economy now uh, as, as opposed to the kinds of effects they might have had in the past. It's certainly true that, you know, we were in a state of more or less undeclared economic war with the Soviet Union, for instance, um, from the period of the revolution in 1917 all the way through to the end of the Cold War. And in that period, the Soviet economy, of which Russia was the largest part, was, was, was designed to be robust and resilient against these kind of shocks. It was essentially a, a, a kind of war economy all the time. The Russian economy since the 1990s went through a huge phase of crisis and was then rebuilt in the 2000s. And it was rebuilt on a materials, raw materials export, raw materials and energy export model. Um, and so oil and gas and, and metal ores are, are the largest elements of Russia's exports. Those That revenue flows back. It generates jobs. It generates tax revenue for the Russian government. It's very important, providing, as it were, the cushion for economic development. One shouldn't, however, exaggerate in the sense that um, you know, exports make up perhaps 29% of Russian GDP, so less than a third. Um, so it's, it, isn't, it isn't a Germany or a Netherlands or somewhere like that, well, or Malaysia, where, where exports account for a huge share of economic activity. Um, but, um, but it's vulnerable, but it's, it's not as though, as it were, life as they know it is going to hot cease in Russia, because 
they grow food, they generate energy, they have basic industry. Um, Iran is, you know, it has gone through this experience of savage economic sanctions, and mm -hmm. it's a huge shock, but big, sophisticated societies like Iran and Russia adjust to this kind of thing. They have internal sources of substitution. They've even started making their own cheese, for heaven's sake, because <laughs> Europe, uh, they, they stopped importing French cheese after the Crimean sanctions, and so that there's now a Russian cheese industry. So then what is the hoped for, I guess, effect of these sanctions and in then practical terms, what what are they actually achieving? I mean, if, if, if as you point out, uh, large economies are able to, to somewhat adjust to these kind of things, why, why are we doing it? Well, we're doing it in part, I think, most of all, because we said we were going to do it. I mean, consistency, credibility in foreign policy, as in other areas of policy, is hugely important. And in the run-up to this, the Russian invasion, which, of course, people didn't, didn't expect, we didn't, we didn't think that Russia would actually jump, we said that we would impose a huge economic cost on Russia if Putin did commit the folly of attacking the, uh, Ukraine. And so you have to then follow through. Um, why did we threaten to do this? Because we didn't want to use other means, right? So we're walking a very dangerous line here. Russia is not Iran. It's very important to understand this because the purpose of sanctions against Iran is to prevent it from becoming a nuclear power. Russia already is the second largest nuclear power. So to its credit, the Biden administration has drawn a very clear red line that there is not going to be direct military involvement military supplies of, military, of, of weapons have got, been going on to Ukraine, as, as you pointed out in the, intro, in the intro, since 2015, 2016, on quite substantial scale. But if you are not going to become directly boots on the ground involved, what are you going to do? And so then, as it were, in your toolkit, economic sanctions come up. So the main reason we're doing this is we said we would, and we said we would do it because we wanted to deliver pain to Russia uh, short of military engagement. I don't think anyone really can seriously believe that these measures are going to immediately change Putin's mind. Putin is embarked on this invasion. He needs something he can call a win. Where sanctions will matter is that they, as it were, encourage him to make that shift as quickly as possible because the pain is real. I do think some people, and I find this a rather dangerous train of thought, are imagining that these sanctions will be so severe that they will somehow shift the balance of power in Russia, either at the elite level between the oligarchs and Putin or at the popular level, folks on the street demanding change. And as it were, out of this will come regime change. And I have to say, I think that's a, a really long shot on rather a dangerous scenario. Um, what I think the more reasonable interpretation is that we said we would hurt the Russian regime if, if it engaged in this invasion, and so we are. And that should speed up, if you like, the process through which Russia looks for some kind of an off-ramp. Mm. In the meantime, the tech sanctions, and this is important to emphasize, they hurt the Russian war effort directly. Um, you know, apparently one of their tank factories has had to shut down. But, I mean, that will act on the war if it continues for another six months, because they'll run out of equipment. None of us, of course, hope that it will continue for that long. But were it to, then the sanctions would actually also work on the on the armaments uh, industry. But my answer, you know, not confused, but like multifaceted as, as it is, suggests, I think, that the logic here is not quite as cut and dry, not quite as straightforward as, as you might imagine. I'm talking with uh, Adam Tews, an economic history professor at Columbia, author of many books uh, about the economy. Most recently, his 
book was uh, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Uh, here we're talking about Russia. We're talking about Russia and Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and the response from the United States, from our Western allies, from Japan, uh, to try to break Russia economically in response to its invasion of <coughs> Ukraine. Uh, we'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Call and tell us uh, how you're reacting to the Russian invasion of Ukraine now that we're more than a month into this war. Uh, what do you make of the United States' response? What do you make of this idea that sanctions are the appropriate response and not direct military uh, intervention of, of some kind? Uh, what do you make of the sanctions that have been in place for weeks now? And what kind of effect do you think they're going to have ultimately on Russia, but also perhaps on Europe and the rest of the world. Um, give us a call, 313-577-1019 to join the conversation. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can include you in the conversation that way. especially want to hear from folks who think we perhaps should be a little tougher with Russia than, than we have. Uh, are you eager to see NATO or the United States in some form uh, get involved in uh, the military uh, conflict in Ukraine? Are you eager to see us push the Russians back? Uh, something that, uh, of course, we have not done, not just here, uh, but also in, in other instances. Uh, where we've seen Russian aggression. Uh, tell us why and, and what you would be willing to tolerate, I suppose, in terms of losses and other things if we were to do that. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to social media for comments there. Um, Anna, before we get to listeners, uh, I, I want to ask about the, I guess, reflective uh, consequences of sanctions. Uh, taking... Uh, the Russian economy out of the world economy in some way has an effect in other places, including here uh, in the United States. Are those consequences, I guess, worth the, the are, are they worth what we're getting out of sanctions? Or ultimately, uh, is that a sacrifice that people are maybe not going to be willing to make? Well, um, the impact on the United States comes mainly through um, two channels, um, and, and it's essentially global commodity markets. So one is uh, the energy uh, system globally, and, and the, the thing that matters for the US is oil. Um, there's one big pool of oil, basically, that's the global oil market. And if you disrupt any supply into it, and Russia accounts for about 10% of, of global production, then it will affect all consumers because it will drive prices up. And we've seen that happening. It comes on the back of a tightening in global oil markets that was the story of last year. So this will push up prices at the pump for regular American consumers. There may also be on a much milder effect for the United States through food prices globally. Um, and so people may see that in the rising cost of, of, of food, both bread, um, you know, made out of wheat and um, food, uh, meat, because, because the cattle have to be fed on, on grain. And, and Ukraine and Russia are major suppliers of grain to world markets. That'll be the main effect. And frankly, it's modest. This isn't about the United States. Neither the sanctions story, really, nor this question about the ramifications are about the US, because the scale of trade and even financial interse intersection between Russia and America is, is really pretty trivial. 
Um, America doesn't buy a lot of oil um, from Russia. It doesn't buy any gas. Um, Russian finance is present in American in American markets. There's a smattering of oligarch real estate business here and there, famously. Um, that's a one-way effect. So if America cuts the Russian bank out, banks out, it hurts the Russian banks. It doesn't really hurt the American financial system to any considerable extent. The trade-offs where are very real um, in Europe, America's you know main ally in the region. And, and there the questions are, you know, borderline existential because the, the question really is where do you get your gas from? Not, not oil so much because oil is one big market, but gas comes through pipelines and it goes directly into the power stations and the homes of Europeans. And um, that, um, that uh, is, is uh, uh, a problem the Europeans are absolutely struggling with right now. And there, the trade-offs are, you know, acute. I mean, the, the question really is, will there be enough electricity um, in for the German economy, for instance? They're talking about the potential of a recession of 4 or 5% of GDP were they to, to boycott Russian oil and gas, which they're so far not doing. So the effects of, this, of these sanctions to date are, are quite ambiguous for Russia because they've driven oil and gas prices up, which has generated more export revenue for Russia, at the same time as this narrowed markets and the range of people who are willing to buy their products has shrunk. So this is a, uh, a question largely for America's allies. And the Biden administration has been appropriately, you know, modest, really, in its calls on other people to do very tough things uh, for their economies, has taken the lead in, in ending American imports of oil, which is a symbolic gesture, but one which has little practical effect. Uh, for everyone else, the trade-offs are tough. For countries like India, for instance, which relies enormously heavily on imports of Russian fertilizer, they simply can't do without it and have made perfectly clear that they have no intention of stopping those imports. Um, so the, there's a very limited extent to which large parts of the world can cut themselves off from Russia in the short run, though we may be forced in that direction over coming months. Okay, coming up, we're going to continue this conversation about Russia and Ukraine and the worldwide response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we want to get going on the phones and on social media as well. Call and tell us what you think about the idea of sanctioning Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. We'll start when we come back with John on the east side and Anthony in southwest Detroit. You want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to social media. Let us know what you think of our approach there, and we can include you in the program that way. We'll be right back with more right today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest right now is Adam Tews, an economic history professor at Columbia, also the author of a lot of books about the economy, most recently, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Today, we are talking about Russia and Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the response from the United States and many of its allies to impose heavy sanctions on Russia as a way to punish that country for what it's doing. We're talking about what effect those sanctions have, not only on Russia, but on the rest of the world, and whether they might be effective at convincing Vladimir Putin uh, to stop his invasion of Ukraine. Um, as always, we want to hear from you on the phones and on social media 
call and tell us what you think of the sanctions against Russia. Do you think they will be effective at stopping the Russian invasion? Uh, would you like to see more from the United States? Would you perhaps like to see some sort of military intervention to push back the Russian invasion. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with John on the east side. John, what's on your mind? Well, this, uh, this riles me up because I feel helpless, uh, and I don't understand why we we are continuing to even deal with Russia. And I look, I look at the uh, U.S. imports back to 95 of Russian oil and crude and petroleum products, and we've never stopped or even uh, – 95 was the slowest year that we had of importing, and that's as far as it goes back up to 21. But there was no slowdown in 14, uh, and uh, – <laughs> I just I know the answer, but why would we support this terrorist nation that we are pretty clear has always been terrorists? Hmm. You, you know, back back 20 years ago, there was an ad on national television, and it wasn't a Saturday Night Live, of somebody smoking a joint, and they were calling them terrorists because they were supporting the marijuana industry. Why are we supporting? You know, continue to support this economy. So you there. would you would cut it off altogether? Is is would be your approach, John? Is that right? Well, after they invaded in 2014, what did we do? Hmm. We didn't hmm. do. We didn't stop buying their product. We didn't. Con- they had the largest military. That's because we continue to support their products and import their products. Yeah, it's as simple as that. And as I understand it, all oil has a DNA character, and you can test it and find out where what region of the the world it's coming from yeah john i really appreciate the call um and the perspective uh, adam twos what's your reaction well i mean i share your guests um frustration um the it's worth saying that the though he's right that um imports did continue until recently they are now effectively being stopped um and they were at a very low volume i mean it's it's Russia is not a major supplier of, of fossil fuels of any type to the United States. So it was always marginal. And if one had wanted to have a clean slate, you could have stopped those imports at an earlier stage. I mean, the sad fact of the matter is that fossil fuel imports, generally speaking, come from rather unattractive sources. I mean, you're the, the, the list of countries that you would actually relish importing fossil fuels from is, is short and probably starts with Norway, and then you could move on from there. Generally speaking, if you're taking them from the Gulf states, which say the Europeans are now contemplating taking more of their gas from the Gulf states, you know, the prime, the number one candidate on that list is Qatar. And, you know, these are non-democratic Arab um, dynastic regimes that you're dealing with if you're not dealing with Russia. And the idea about trade with Russia was that it, and this is a, a policy the Germans began half a century ago, was that it would in fact improve relations, not just in the sense that we would get along and have common interests, but that there would be structural change on the Russian side, that Russia would move in the right direction. And, you know, in fairness to Russian society, there are no doubt tens of millions of Russians who are very Western orientated, who are part of Western businesses, work in the franchises and the local branches of Western businesses who are horrified by what's going on would, would very much like their country to become more like Western Europe, for instance. 
but they're they 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 are the weaker side in the in the arm wrestling match in the tug of war that's been going on in Russia really for the last decades, and we we are now in a situation where indeed buying buying oil and gas from Russia does seem as though we are effectively subsidizing Putin's war making machine, um, and and not just through that. I mean, you know, international investors, pension funds in the West also hold government debt from Russia, which is an even more direct way of of financing the regime. And the yeah. Russian government is continuing to pay interest on that. It's a puzzle to me that the investors, you know, are not, you know, contributing those interest revenues back to some common fund to support Ukraine, because that's an even more direct way in which Western financial interests are entangled with Putin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, John, really appreciate the call and, uh, and the thoughts. Let's go to Bradley on Telegraph Road. Uh, Bradley, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Go ahead. I'm just I'm finding, yeah, yeah, I'm finding this coverage um, vaguely offensive. Um, Russia is part of Europe, and I don't think we have any legitimate right to impose uh, milit- what would you call it, economic warfare on Russia or the Russian people. And any money that we spend there, we could be spending here. Um, I'm driving down Telegraph Road, and it's uh, everything around me is falling apart and crumbling. Hmm. And as we, I don't know, try to create a Europe that's to uh, not even my liking, but to whoever's, to some oligarch's liking, uh, things are crumbling here. And it's, I find it deeply offensive. And I actually find the coverage offensive, too. Like, why can't we bomb them more? Why can't we give them more military? Why, you know, why can't we kill more people? Everything about it is uh, distasteful to me. Hmm. Now, Bradley, I really appreciate uh, you calling with that perspective. And I think that there are a fair number of people who are sitting around scratching their heads about what our interests are here and whether the focus that we've put on Russia and Ukraine would be better trained on domestic problems. Uh, Adam Tews, uh, talk about whether that's um, a perspective that that we ought to be uh, really thinking about and uh, if you can talk about the tie between our domestic issues our domestic challenges and what's going on in russia uh, or in, in in europe are these really entirely separate issues and should we be you know for lack of a of a better phrase minding our own business um, I, one can only sympathize. Obviously, the, the situation of many uh, communities in the United States is dire. And the fact that the only bit of the budget which passes Congress smoothly with bipartisan applause is the gigantic spending on the Defense Department um, is grotesque. And it's clearly a profound failing of the American political system that that's true and profoundly worrying, not just from the point of view of the US, but the wider world, if you think of issues like climate policy, where America needs to make a global contribution. So at that level, I'm you know, in deep sympathy with your caller. Um, it so happens that previous United States governments, um, before, if you like, the crisis of America's domestic situation became as acute as it did, and it has, um, entered into obligations to other states. Um, one is the NATO treaty, which means that under Article 5, the United States is bound to provide defensive assistance to the other members of NATO um, if they are attacked. And Ukraine is not a member of NATO. 
Um, and that is the limit and the red line that Biden and the Biden administration are drawing and drawing very firmly. And, and though, unfortunately, another American government, the Bush administration in 2008, said and strong-armed the rest of NATO into committing NATO to eventually offering Ukraine membership, it currently isn't a member, and that is the red line the Biden administration is drawing. The, the other commitment that the United States government entered into um, is with the Ukraine itself and involved uh, a very complex agreement um, in the transition period in the 1990s, in the dangerous period where you know, folks used to make movies about this, where the, nu where the nuclear weapons of the former Soviet Union were kind of on the loose. We didn't really quite know where they were. And a very substantial element of that arsenal ended up in the Ukraine. And the Ukraine in the early 1990s was not a very well-governed state. And there was therefore a considerable global interest in securing the denuclearization of the Ukraine. The Ukraine in 1994 voluntarily gave up its nuclear deterrent, and it had one of the largest in the world. And under that treaty, the United States and the other signatories um, made security commitments to Ukraine, short of NATO style, if you're attacked, we'll go to war, but nevertheless, the kind of security commitments that you would you would imagine would have to be made. And Russia is egregiously violating those commitments right now. And so America is acting to a degree, if you like, under the imperative of that, of a guilty conscience of, of having made commitments to Ukraine twice over in 1994 and 2008, which it really doesn't want to back up, but to some degree has to. And the cynical interpretation of what's going on is indeed alarming, which is that we're giving them, you know, as much rope as they want to hang themselves with. Which is what, which is after all, you know, we're fighting against the Russians to the last Ukrainian. Um, and it's a, it's a situation I don't think anyone anticipated finding ourselves in because um, six weeks to two months ago, no one credited the Ukrainians with the capacity to defend themselves to the extent mm. that they are. The third dimension of this is that uh, however powerful the United States is and however protected it is by its position geographically, I think it's difficult to imagine a world in which the United States doesn't have some interest in the basic provisions of international law, um, and as any other country in the world does, right? And um, Russia's action against Ukraine is clearly an egregious and violent uh, break of the most fundamental law, which is, you know, <laughs> countries have a right to be safe against attack by large neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so if America was just a responsible member of the international community, like regardless of its superpower status and its previous commitments and its role in the Cold War and everything else, um, you would still nevertheless hope that the United States would take a strong and negative view of what's happening because this is an egregious violation. And whatever, whatever Russia's resentments are, whatever its more or less legitimate demands are, to send tanks and bomber aircraft and cruise missiles unprovoked into a neighboring country is simply unacceptable and must be unacceptable. There's no good world forth from here, there's in, in which, as it were, that is an acceptable state of affairs. And this is in no way to take away from the urgent need for money to be spent on urban reconstruction and all sorts of other types of community development in the United States. And, and no doubt, from the Detroit perspective, this, this feels like, you know, what the hell are we doing? And that's a critique, obviously, that goes back in American, you know, in the civil rights movement and the socioeconomic demands of the 1960s, where somebody like Martin Luther King is weighing up the willingness to spend money on bombs in Vietnam against the unwillingness to deal with poverty and unemployment in the black community in the United States at home. Um, so this is a long-standing problem, but I, I, as sympathetic as I am to that position, I still think there are stakes for the West in the Ukraine in the Ukraine crisis. Mm. Uh, Bradley, uh, really do appreciate 
a call on that really provocative uh, point of view. I want to go next to Anthony, who has kind of a related point uh, to what we were just talking about. Anthony, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Yeah, well, uh, international law, I just got to say, give me a break. If that's the case, I'm waiting for us to get sanctioned over what we've done and what we are currently doing in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, Palestine, uh, the coups we fomented in Ukraine, Honduras, Bolivia, Venezuela. And this is just in the last decade or two. So I think the international law, that's that's a ruse. You know, the United States has a thing called the Hague Invasion Act, which is that if any United States official gets dragged in front of the International Criminal Court, we're supposed to invade the Hague. Uh, Anthony, you know, I, I do appreciate you calling and, and pointing out these these instances of contradiction. Some people would say hypocrisy uh, with regard to, to U.S. policy that, that we do often act as the world's policemen, but but often also uh, commit acts that, that I, I think uh, violate the, the, the very spirit of, of the laws that we, um, that we say that we hold sacred. Um, Adam Tews, what's your response to that? Are we, are we not in a moral position to be able to condemn what Russia's doing because of things that uh, have happened at the behest of our own leadership? Oh, I, I'm, again, I mean, I marched against the war in, in 2003, and I would strongly agree with anyone who wanted to bring the decision makers principally in the United States and Great Britain um, to justice over that. Um, I, I think that's an entirely um, valid position, and I, and I would support it. I mean, the, the problem is two wrongs don't make a right, right? Um, you, you have to choose um, between, um, in this situation, between hypocrisy and cynicism, and um, frankly, I'll choose hypocrisy any day if I'm given that option. There is no doubt an element of hypocrisy involved, though, and it is odious to watch, you know, the veterans of the 2000s going on the American news channels and declaring this an unprecedented act. You know, never, never since World War II has there been an invasion like this. I mean, I mean, it's absurd. Um, but 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 saying that doesn't mean that that uh, one shouldn't. Um, somebody who's interested in democracy and the rule of law um, favor measures to be taken against against the Russian regime for this aggressive act. I mean, I, I would have favored sanctions to be applied to the United States and the UK and the other prominent members of the of the coalition. I, my major attachment is to is to Germany. It's where I grew up and it's the political system that I feel myself most uh, you know linked to. And the German and French governments both refused to back the 2003 mm. The 2003 war, um, and they are also in the forefront of the debate right now because not only are is there an element of hypocrisy in the kind of measures that are being adopted by the US right now, but they're also largely symbolic. They just don't matter, and they don't involve very serious trade-offs. I mean, they matter in the sense the financial element and the tech bit are the bits that will actually hurt Russia, but the rest is really for show. The countries that actually have to make difficult trade-offs are the Europeans who are in the midst of this, who pursued a policy some will call it appeasement now, others would call it detente, of working with the Russians um, and have done all the way back to the Cold War, um, precisely because they believed that the greater interests of humanity in their countries were served by trying to defuse the risk of a nuclear of a nuclear clash and that commerce and common interests in trade and gas might help. Um, but the consequence of that is that you're now deeply tied in. They haven't diversified their sources of supply the way they should have. 
And so they now are really, you know, in the midst of a almost daily renegotiation of their relationship. And it's it's a very difficult position to pursue anything remotely like progressive politics from. Again, they don't have the luxury. The crucial thing is they don't have the luxury of distance, right? They're right there. Um, sure. And if you're Poland, likewise, you don't have the luxury of distance. I mean, Poland is a country which has repeatedly experienced directly the force of Russian aggression, from which point of view, these, these problems appear much more serious than they do in the US. I can see people on the left, the right, in the United States wanting to take positions on this, but they should be aware of how, in a sense, abstract those choices are because it doesn't affect people in the US directly one way or the other very much, other than by way marginal trade-offs in the government budget, which a previous caller brought up, which we all know are relatively tiny by current house and with the huge trade-offs that are made all the time in that budget. So this is a, it's a small issue fundamentally from the point of view of those much closer to the scene who have a history which goes very deep with Russia, the Soviet Union on this, the, the choices are much, much tougher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Anthony, again, thanks for the call. Uh, and the insight. Uh, let's go next to Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, welcome to the show. Um, I'd like to see the leaders have uh, much more extreme, severe consequences. So I'm dreaming here, but if every country in the world had transparency laws so that all assets could easily be found and seized uh, to, to um, prevent violence, and then after the violence, to make the leader of the country pay to resolve all the destruction of the people and the property um, as a restitution. But of course, I'm dreaming, but that's my dream. <laughs> well, so there's nothing wrong with dreaming, <laughs> nothing at all. Um, but, and you raise, I think, an important point here, which is how much is Vladimir Putin, for instance, suffering? Uh, because of these economic sanctions. Uh, this is someone who, of course, has great wealth uh, in addition to great power. Does, does the act of sanctioning his country have any effect at all on him that might persuade uh, him to, to, to act differently? Adam, what's the answer? Uh, I think the short answer is no. Um and um, I mean, I, I, again, I, you know, there was something truly grotesque about the, you know, the whoops of joy and cheering in the American Congress as Biden and his State of the Union announced that we're going to go after the, the oligarchs, ships, you know, yachts and villas, mansions, whatever, you know, a, a, a Congress which, after all, is, is, is otherwise distinguished by its by <laughs> solicitousness with which it protects the interests of very wealthy people in the United States. Um you know, it was, a, it was a, one of your callers was talking about hypocrisy. I mean, that was an extreme instance of, of that. <laughs> um, unfortunately, you know, one of the hypotheses under which the targeted sanctions are done, right, that, you know, the kind of ideal, the technocratic ideal of sanctions is that you take measures which don't affect regular folks in Russia, whose responsibility for this crisis, insofar as there is one at all, is at, mo at most the indirect one of supporting and cheering for Putin's regime as it embarks on this aggression. Right? So you, you try and avoid targeting them. You take them out of harm's way. Regular folks who live on middle incomes, low incomes in Russia, and instead mm -hmm. you go after the wealth of the, of the oligarchic group. And the idea is that perhaps you can thereby shift the decision making of the regime. But everything we've seen about Putin's Russia since the early 2000s is that the power balance around the Kremlin has shifted decisively against people away from the people who are principally motivated by money, right? There, there's clearly a group in Russia who are basically avaricious, multi-billionaire oligarchs in the classic sense. 
Um, but those aren't any longer the people. And, and they, well, in the 90s, you could say perhaps that they were the dominant group. But, but really, since the early 2000s, that's no longer been the case. I mean, Russia has acted much more aggressively against oligarchic intrusion into the political sphere than we have in the West, right? Um, on, uh, Putin draws relatively clear red lines about what extremely wealthy Russian power holders are, where they're supposed to be involved and where not. And great power politics is not the domain in which the oligarchs any longer have any voice. That, that is a matter of Putin and the group of security you know, service folks, people who come out of the FSB, the descendant of the KGB, um, people from the military, or, or just personal associates of, of Putin back to his days in St. Petersburg in the 90s. And the idea that, you know, taking a billion here or a billion there away or depriving them of their chance to go and take holidays in the south of France. I mean, be clear, none of these people are very interested in visiting the United States, the Caribbean maybe, but not the United States. Um, it's, you know, the idea it's going to make any difference to them, I think it's trivial, it's silly. There's no, there's no way. Putin thinks he's playing for the history of Russia. That's what this is about. He wants to know where he stands in relation to Stalin and Peter the Great and Ivan the Terrible. He's not, he's not fussed about whether or not he, you know, some, you know, he, he loses a yacht or two. This is, this is, you know, silly um, to imagine that. And um, so, no, it's not going to affect it one way or the other. Um, these aren't run-of-the-mill, you know, conventionally motivated people at this point. Sure. This isn't to say that they're, you know, off in the ideological clouds. I think they have a pretty clear geopolitical game they're playing. But for sure, they can offset um, and find other ways of, you know, enjoying themselves. Okay. Adam Tews, uh, economic history professor at Columbia. Always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today, but especially today to talk about uh, sanctions and Russia. Thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure. Coming up, we're going to speak with a local Ukrainian-American to talk about how they are handling the war in Ukraine and what they're doing locally to support people back home in Ukraine. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. It's now been a month, more than a month, in fact, since Russia invaded Ukraine. And if you've been keeping up with what's going on, You've witnessed a lot of death and destruction being wrought on the Ukrainian people. And you've watched the number of people who are fleeing that country hit 4 million. Well, Russia recently said it would, quote, drastically reduce combat operations in Kyiv and elsewhere. A lot of people don't believe that promise and expect the suffering in Ukraine to continue. To hear more about how Ukrainian Americans are interpreting the news and helping Ukrainians from Michigan, we have Mikhail Mursky with us. He is the chairman of the Ukrainian American Crisis Response Committee of Michigan. Mikhail, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so start here. 
What's your reaction to what's happening on the ground in Ukraine right now? You know, it's 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 frightening. Um, but you know, although it scares us, we're not mourning. We're mobilizing. We're making sure that the Ukraine community here in Michigan, all fifty thousand of us, are working together to protect our ancestral homeland and to make sure that we're alleviating the suffering. But at the same time, you know, we're scared. Um, we're scared that people are um, people in Ukraine are very vulnerable right now. Um, with four million refugees that are mostly women and children, this is um, this is. <laughs> you know, a prime area for human traffickers to try to exploit. We're terrified of that. We're terrified of the forced deportations that are happening from Eastern Ukraine into Russia. And we're terrified whenever Putin announces that he's going to be focusing on Eastern Ukraine and then promptly increases his his exertions in Central and in Western Ukraine. You know, that's scary. That's very scary for us. Mm. Uh, what are you hearing about what's happening in Ukraine from your friends and maybe loved ones who are still there? So in the, when the war first began and we called our friends and family that were there, they had kind of, a, they were very optimistic about Ukraine's prospects of winning and they remain optimistic that Ukraine is going to win. 93% of Ukrainians believe that Ukraine will win the war. But the tone with which they speak to us over the past couple of weeks has changed. So although they remain convinced that Ukraine will win, they have this kind of dread or fear of at what cost? How many civilians are the Russians going to kill in the process of losing their war in Ukraine? And it's, it's, it's frightening because this is what the Russian military does. As we saw in Grozny in the late 90s, uh, when Russia was not able to, to, <laughs> to subdue the, 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 the rebellion in Chechnya, they flattened the entire city of Grozny in Chechnya. Mm -hmm. They flattened Aleppo uh, in Syria during the Syrian civil war. And they're going to try and do the exact same thing in Ukraine. So what are Ukrainian immigrants and Ukrainian Americans going through? And I guess what kind of organizing is happening here in Southeast Michigan to help with this situation back home? So it's, I mean, it's, it's tough. Um, it's tough. People are... People are mobilized, though. So we have uh, we have a Ukrainian American Crisis Response Committee of Michigan, which is kind of like a, a coordinating body for all of the many Ukrainian American organizations that are doing so much. Uh, and there's a lot of them. There's the Ukrainian National Women's League of America, the Michigan Division. There is the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. There's the Ukrainian Amer American Civic Committee. There's so many groups in Southeast Michigan that are doing a lot to provide humanitarian aid, to advocate, to raise public awareness. Um, to ship medical supplies to Ukraine. Um, we have shipped uh, around 20 tons of medical supplies to Ukraine so far um, out of our, uh, from our, from our you know, Detroit operations. And we hope that we can increase that number with every week that goes by. Hmm. Um, I wonder what you make of the U.S. response so far to Ukraine. We were talking earlier about uh, the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia uh, and the efforts to get Vladimir Putin to change his mind. Do you feel like the U.S. and its allies are in the right space here? Do you feel, I guess, frustrated maybe by um, the lack of more uh, things being on the table? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, it, it, there, there, sometimes, I, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on in, in detail in Washington, but, uh, you know, sometimes it looks like the administration is really being dragged by its nose uh, 
by a bipartisan supermajority in Congress that thinks that more needs to be done. You know, a majority of Americans think that significantly more should be done in Ukraine and that Russia should be paying higher costs for its, for its aggression. So I, I'm not really sure what's going on. I mean, we are we're, we're very grateful for what the administration, the Biden administration, has done for Ukraine so far. Without the weapons that that were provided and without the without the supplies, Ukraine might have fallen. Uh, Ukraine might have fallen. Um, so we're, we're we're deeply grateful. But at the same time, um, we need to remember that we have to give Ukraine not just enough weapons so that it doesn't lose or so that way it loses very slowly, but enough weapons so that way Ukraine wins. This is a war of justice. This is a war of for freedom. This is a war that must be won by Ukraine. It is in the U.S. national interest that Ukraine win this war. Um, there is no, there, there is no way for us to kind of, um, you know, defend the idea of a Europe whole, free, and at peace, which is a, a core American interest, without the security of Ukraine and without without making sure that Ukraine's sovereignty and ter territorial integrity are restored. So yes, I mean we are we are extremely grateful for what the administration has done, but we would certainly like to see enough support so that way Ukraine can win and win quickly. Uh, I, I also want to give you a chance to talk about what people here can do if they want to help in Ukraine. What, what if you're somebody who's sitting and watching this and maybe frustrated by all of it? What would be, I guess, a reasonable response. Sure. So uh, I, I mean, a good place to start would be uh, going to our website, uacrisisresponse.org. And you can find information there about what kind of supplies we're collecting. So if you are or somebody you know is connected with a hospital system, uh, the, the medical industry, pharmaceuticals, we, we, we need a lot of supplies from those sectors. Um, and the supplies that we need are listed there on the website. And you can check out uh, you can check it out and, you know, reach out to us and we can help coordinate deliveries and donations. You can also donate to uh, to the to the funds that we have listed on that site. Um, we are, we, I mean, we're desperate for the funds that we need to ship these supplies to Ukraine. So people have been very generous in giving us, um, in, in, in donating humanitarian, humanitarian supplies, but we need the funds to be able to ship them to Ukraine. And the medical supplies can't really be shipped. They have to be transported by air. Um, because they're needed so desperately in Ukraine, and that is significantly more, significantly more expensive um, to either charter planes, use cargo planes, that kind of thing. Um, shipping by air is significantly more expensive, and we need the funds to be able to do that. So I would say, in those two ways, that's 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 how you can help. Yeah. Okay, uh, McCullough Mursky, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today to talk about the local impact of what is going on in uh, Ukraine. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about the promise and challenge of tearing down freeways that devastated black communities all across the country, especially here in Detroit. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.